All right, good evening, comrades, and welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Today is May 16th, 2023. I want to thank you all for being here. Our class tonight is going to be the beginning on a series of the history of U.S. imperialism. Uh, this is a subject that we need to thoroughly understand uh, as American anti-imperialists. We're in the belly of the beast, so we need to understand the history of this nation's imperialism. And today we're going to start with its origins. It's going to have a brief introduction, which talks about uh, the formation of America and the development of American capitalism. And then it's going to jump into around the time of 1898, uh, which is when it really starts to kick off. But before we do that, I want to just give a couple of reminders. The People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies is a PCUSA-initiated and sponsored school, uh, which is great because it allows a wide variety of different perspectives to be brought forth, which don't necessarily reflect the party line, since it's not a party school. But we have a lot of uh, party comrades here that can give you some insight uh, into what our perspectives on these things might be. So as I said, tonight's class is the history of U.S. imperialism origins. What we're going to be learning today is we're going to do a brief introduction covering the development of American capitalism and the colonization of North America. We're going to speak briefly about the monopolization of the American industry. And the main subject of our class is going to be the dawn of American imperialism with the Spanish-American War and more. So here's the introduction, American capitalist expansion. The United States of America was formed in 1781 after winning the American Revolutionary War against the Kingdom of Great Britain, which was one of the world's largest empires at the time. The Founding Fathers were wary of the United States becoming an empire and sought to avoid foreign entanglements and began the policy of non-interventionism. So you can imagine these Founding Fathers had just won a war against one of the biggest empires in the world. So their objective was not to uh, recreate that, uh, but with the name of America. They wanted to avoid that at the time. Now, as we are about to see in the next slides, this did uh, open the gates for the colonization of North America and the expanding across the continent. But at the time, uh, this was a very progressive thing, the Revolutionary War. And so they did not want to repeat the same uh, mistakes as the Kingdom of Great Britain. Following the, the formation of a new capitalist United States of America, expansion was necessitated by the capitalist system and the country began its westward expansion. You can see over here on the side, we have some map that shows you the territorial evolution of the United States. You have the territory of the original 13 states, as well as the Northwest Ordnance Area. You have the Louisiana Purchase from 1803. You have more things that were got in the 1840s and 50s when we had the war with Mexico. And you can see how long it took to get all of this land that we think of as the contiguous United States. This territorial expansion was promoted in the name of Manifest Destiny. Uh, which is basically the belief that Americans have a religious duty uh, to expand across the continent and capture this land. But that was at the expense of the indigenous people of North America, of which hundreds of thousands were killed and millions were displaced in the indigenous genocide. The contiguous United States that we know today is the 48 states was achieved in 1853 with the Gadsden Purchase from Mexico. It was one of the last things following the Mexican-American War. The first overseas colonization project of the United States was of Liberia and Africa by the American Colonization Society, 
the purpose of which was to relocate freed black slaves to Africa. And I'll let comrades know that that was not exactly successful. Uh, we gave Liberia their independence a little later. And one of the things that happened when we sent a lot of the freed black slaves back there was the indigenous peoples in Liberia didn't necessarily get along with them. But following the American Civil War, the United States saw a massive boom in industry as railroads were built and technology advanced. Alaska was bought from the Russian Empire in 1867. America had entered the Gilded Age. This boom would lead to the monopolization and a drive for more overseas territories to turn the United States into an empire that could easily compete with other European empires. And we'll stop for our first round of questions and comments. Yeah, I'm glad that already we've mentioned Liberia because I just find it such a fascinating point of history. Mostly, and from our perspective, is because, to my knowledge, and anybody correct me if I'm wrong, but they not only didn't get along with the indigenous peoples, but they they literally like participated in slavery. So it didn't work. And it speaks to the necessity to have a class analysis of these things. We literally tried to send black people back to Africa. So if anybody brings that up, you can say, no, we actually tried it and it didn't work because as long as you have a class system, it doesn't matter who's in charge. If it's what color they are or where they're from, you're going to have a master and a slave dynamic. And that's why it didn't quote unquote work. So I appreciate that we're getting into that right off the bat. Thank you, comrade. And it just goes to show as well that sending people back to the areas they came from is not even anywhere near the solution. It didn't work with Liberia. It wouldn't work if we were to you know, send white people back to Europe or whatever. It's best to just improve the conditions for people where they're at and give emancipation to those that are oppressed. Okay, I just wanted to touch more on the relationship between the United States and Mexico in regards to like imperialism. You know, I know that we do consider it to be the acquisition of overseas territories, but this was like, you know, the bigger neighbor and not even the bigger neighbor, you know, the economically more powerful neighbor kind of subduing the smaller country that wasn't as uh, developed and everything like this. And, you know, it's a very interesting thing because now we have a situation where, you know, there is a lot of people that are coming from Mexico, specifically Central America, and they're coming to the United States. And it it, it poses the question of, you know, the border, they're not crossing the border, the border crossed them type deal, you know, definitely. And it's kind of hard to rectify these issues, you know, as it's something that's been hundreds of years in the making. They even were deporting people back to Mexico, like Chicanos back in like the 1910s and everything like this, just rounding them up and deporting them. Same kind of thing with Liberia. And then these are Chicanos that grew up speaking English, that grew up with American culture, and now they're just back in Mexico and, you know, they suffer too. You know, it's it's a very complex relationship the United States has with Mexico. And I think that would be the beginning of U.S. imperialism. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, at the end of the day, is there a difference between the old school colonialism where you would physically send troops to take the country or is imperialism imperialism? Thank you. Yeah, I can give a response to this. And then if somebody wants to give a better answer, they can go ahead and raise their hand. Colonialism, at least in America's history, was something that, as was said in the presentation, was necessitated by American capitalism. 
Uh, the system requires expansion, taking more lands that can yield more crops or you can get more resources out of more cheap labor, that sort of thing. I don't think it, that colonialism, you know, is is inherently imperialism. I think imperialism includes colonialism, but I think imperialism requires, you know, monopolization and finance capital to be behind it. So that's what I would say for that. The colonialism of the 17th and 18th centuries, that was mostly the primitive uh, accumulation phase of capitalism. It was about taking over and privatizing land so that capital could, could expand initially. But under the colonial system initially, they weren't uh, exporting capital. They were, it was actual occupation and use and taking resources, sending them back to the, the home country. Under imperialism, it is a higher stage of, of uh, capitalism where they export capital in the form of money, um, means of production. And what they do is they subdue the, the local population, force them to work for low wages, and then send the product abroad where they manufacture and then sell, for, sell it back to the natives for greater prices. All right. Thank you, comrade. I want to say that the real difference because if I'm right, is they did and the uh, British did with Cillion and they was accepted because they had the name, the language, and the the culture. We we was robbed that name, robbed our culture and, and, and stuff. And then when they sent us back, we was a different type of black people than not than the ones that was there. So we that's why we didn't get along. In, in Liberia uh, as black people, because there's a different distinction. So if you send, let's say, uh, a person back to Ireland and don't speak Gaelic and don't understand Irish culture, it's going to be a, a, a war because it's not, it's going to be a flexion. It's, it's a happen. But if you know your culture and you know, and know what it's about, then it will be more acceptable as it was done uh, with the British and Cillion. I'm not saying the uh, capitalist system, both with capitalist systems, it's not, it's not, right, I'm not proving that, but, but I'm just saying how one culture was accepted and one was not because they did not have it. That's all I have to say. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. And to add on to that, just a little bit of context for comrades, the transatlantic slave trade began in 1619 and ended in 1808. Uh, and so you already had a lot of African people that were brought over uh, to North America by these European powers. They were robbed of basically their cultural identity. And so when we sent them back, they didn't have the same African culture as they had when they had came over here. That's one of the big reasons why that didn't work out. Yeah, I wanted to also add on to the last post that spoke, basically that the African-American people that were brought over here spent quite literally centuries in America, not only being stripped of their local cultures of where they were taken from, like uh, you could have had tribes taken from the Ivory Coast, Ghana, all over the place on the West. But over here, they were all grouped together and formulated into their own uh, distinctive people, you know, according to Stalin's theory on national uh, 
the creation of national peoples, that they became their own distinctive people here in America. And by trying to take them and send them back to Africa, where they couldn't fit in with the Ghanese, they couldn't fit in with the uh, Togo people or the Sokoto people, it, they're basically sending an alien people that looked similar, had ancestral roots to the place, but just did not have the you know land connection to where those people grew up. And to go back to uh, colonialism, something I want to expand on is that during the colonial period, they had policies of colonial resettlement, what we know as a settler colonialism now, and colonial exploitation, which was uh, private companies going into to uh, interfere with foreign matters, uh, you know, invading them, taking them over, and creating uh, private companies. And eventually the government would step in. The British Empire created the East Indian Trading Company to rule over the Raj. But you'd start seeing the rise of imperialism out of colonial exploitation with, you know, the uh, interference and this, uh, deciding to, instead of settle there, to expropriate the resources there. Thank you. Yeah, I was actually just reading about this today, so I, I just wanted to add it. Technically, the transatlantic slave trade started in 1492 because uh, Christopher Columbus exported Native American slaves back to Spain, and they were treated really very brutal as well from the moment that he came over here, the first voyage to America. And the Spanish had a lot of slaves after that in the Americas, indigenous. I want to make a very important statement. When you talk about colonialism versus imperialism, you shouldn't really try to judge these different phenomena based upon economics uh, or military uh, movements. Uh, colonialism was no different than even today's imperialism because it's all based on thought that the people who rule believe they could do so for the same reason a dog looks at testicles, because it can. That's why a dog looks at testicles, because it can. That's why a dog looks at testicles, because it can. That's why they came into America and colonized it. That's why they colonized all over the world, because they could, and they thought they had the right. And the same reason carried forward a few hundred years later, where we go into foreign countries and take them over one way or another, because we can. And that's very simple. It's the attitude that has never changed, especially among the, particularly among the European based uh, populations, even into this country, the English and the nationality. All right. Thank you, comrade. We're going to go back to the reading now. The next part is the beginnings of American imperialism. The monopolization of industry. As the economy boomed and industry grew into the 1870s, the industries of America were being monopolized. As the transcontinental railroad was built and cross-country transport became more common, massive railroad empires were built, taking over whatever smaller rails were connected to their main rails. The railroads were a central struggle in the labor movement. And uh, we saw that with the uh, May Day class a couple weeks ago when you saw a lot of different struggles for the eight-hour workday around that time. The railroads were kind of involved with that. So that was a part of that era. And Standard Oil became the monopoly of petroleum, which at the time was used for mostly lamps and machine lubrication. They didn't necessarily have cars in the late 1800s, but that's what they were used for at that time. And other monopolies included International Harvester, United Fruit Company, 
and American tobacco. American business interests spread to Samoa in the mid-1800s, and they also went to Hawaii and overthrew the Kingdom of Hawaii in 1893. And that was the Dole family, which you'll know now for Dole Fruit. When you go to the store and you see pineapples and they're from Dole Fruit Company, that's the history behind that. And we have a couple of political cartoons over on the side where you see cartoon from the 1800s about monopolies that says, let them have it all and be done with it. And then there's one that I think a lot of us have seen from down on the bottom, which has standard oil. It's like an octopus. It has its tentacles around everything. One of the things that it has its tentacles around is the Capitol building. So I wanted to include those in here as well. And really briefly, we're going to watch a clip from the Untold History of the United States. This is a series by Oliver Stone. Oliver Stone, you might recognize from when we watched Ukraine on fire. Uh, this was what he had done before then. And that we're going to be showing a lot of clips from this tonight. While most Americans thought the United States had fulfilled its manifest destiny by spreading across North America, it was William Henry Seward, Secretary of State to both Abraham Lincoln and Andrew Johnson, who articulated a far more grandiose vision of the American empire. Although he failed more often than he succeeded, he set his sights on acquiring Hawaii, Canada, Alaska, the Virgin Islands, Midway Island, and parts of Santo Domingo, Haiti, and Colombia. A lot of this dream would actually come true. But while Seward dreamed, the European empires acted. Britain led the way in the last 30 years of the century, gobbling up 4.75 million square miles of territory, an area significantly larger than the United States. As the Romans did, Britain believed her mission was to bring civilization to mankind. France added 3.5 million square miles. Germany, off to a late start, added 1 million. Only Spain's empire was in decline. By 1878, European empires and their former colonies controlled 67% of the Earth's land surface. And by 1914, an astounding 84%. By the 1890s, Europeans had carved up 90% of Africa. The lion's share claimed by Belgium, Britain, France, and Germany. The United States was anxious to make up for lost time, and although empire was a hostile concept to Americans, most of whom had come from immigrant stock, it was now an era dominated by the robber barons. In particular, an aristocracy known as the 400, with their huge estates, private armies, legions of employees, men like J.P. Morgan, John D. Rockefeller, and William Randolph Hearst held enormous power. The capitalist class, haunted by visions of the revolutionary workers who formed the Paris Commune of 1871, conjured up 
similar visions of radicals upsetting the system in the United States. What's the use of talking? Talking's done nothing. The pamphlets are no good either. What we want is action. We'll tear up the streets of Paris. If they've got bayonets, we've got knives. These radicals, or communards, were also called communists almost 50 years before the Russian Revolution of 1917. Jay Gould's 15,000-mile railroad empire epitomized the worst of the robber barons. He was perhaps the most hated man in America, having once boasted that he could hire one half of the working class to kill the other half. All right, the next part is the Sherman Antitrust Act. The Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890 was passed by Congress in that year and banned trusts and monopolies in response to the rise of such in the last two and a half decades. As a result, many of the American monopolies were broke up in the next two decades, including Standard Oil in 1911. But many of these large industries and future ones found ways to exist and not be broke up to this day. And a good example of a contemporary one would be Microsoft, uh, which had to go through these trials in the 1990s and wasn't broke up. I mean, we see how that went. The Sherman Antitrust Act would be expanded by the Clayton Antitrust Act of 1914, which further bans some monopolistic practices. However, monopolies had already had a huge effect on American imperialism by the time of World War I. And over on the side is just a picture of the actual act itself from the time. Yeah, I was just going to point out a lot of this stuff has we're going over is happening at the end of the 19th century, but there were hundreds or, well, dozens of interventions that were done overseas by the U.S. prior to that, the 19th century. And a lot of this, of course, started with the Monroe Doctrine. We went into China as early as 1843, so we were like all over the place very quickly. Thank you, comrade. And, you know, there were things like the Barbary Wars, uh, where we were going into the Mediterranean around the start of the 1800s to secure American interests. We did different expeditions all around the world from Africa to East Asia to the Pacific Islands, uh, Latin America. A lot of these things at the time were kind of the precursor steps to American imperialism. But I still think that, if, you know, America was not imperialist yet. It was just that expansion at the time and trying to get ourselves really out there when it comes to world trade, the reason why we did that. But obviously what it blossomed into later was American imperialism. I wanted to make a small correction on the transatlantic slave trade. It was actually reignited due to the need for sugar. The Portuguese needed sugar from the Caribbeans. And so thus the transatlantic slave trade arose due to determinative conditions in which they needed, not because, oh, they could just do it. No, things determinatively rise. They arise due to contradictions that happen in reality. These aren't just fake things in which guys that are kings go, oh, we can conquer the little guy. No, determinative relation between two groups of people occurred due to the need for one group of people to produce the thing that another group of people needed. All right, nailed it on the head. Imperialism and colonialism are two determinatively different stages of development, and they are economically based. They are not ideologically based. Thank you for that, comrade. 
also like if you're listening to the opening song for the marines that's from the halls of moctezuma to the seas of tripoli so like you adventurism abroad by the united states is um nothing new and also wanted to mention that uh like matthew perry's expedition to open japan for trade as they've said was another example of that i really like this section on monopolization it reminded me of a passage from Lenin's Imperialism, The Highest Stage of Capitalism. In the first chapter, he talks about how imperialism needs monopolization. When there's free competition between different companies, they can't just go and take over when there's multiple companies trying to get the same thing, the same fruit from Central America, for example. But when United Fruit Company was the only one they were able to come and take it all because there was nothing, nobody to compete with them for that. That's all I have. Thank you, comrade. And, you know, at some point uh, we will end up having a uh, class on imperialism and reading Lenin's imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism. The only reason why we didn't do it for tonight and for this series is because I wanted to devote as much of it as I could on specifically American imperialism. Uh, but that is going to be a crucial text for us to look into uh, in the near future. So we'll have that uh, soon enough. Yeah, and I, I wanted to say um, one other thing about imperialism. It, uh, colonialism is a tactic that imperialism uses to, uh, you know, to maintain hold. But actually, the more used tactic by imperialism is uh, what they call semi-colonies or the semi-colonialism, where they they don't have an official uh, occupation of the territory, but they buy off the state of the colonized country and essentially they put into power people that will subjugate their own people for the imperialist interest. So I just wanted to also say that, that colonialism does fit into imperialism, but imperialism is more than just colonialism. All right. Thank you, comrade. Mark Twain wrote a book. It was about the Spanish-American War. This was written before communism was on the march in the United States. And he wrote this book in which he says that imperialism is the enemy of the people. And he was not a communist. He was about Huckleberry Finn and as American as apple pie. This was his analysis. When people hear people about imperialism, they think of communists. People that were not communists who talked about it wanted to say thank you. Uh, what was the name of the book by Mark Twain again? Uh, comrade, is it Gold Rush Days? I think it was the Gilded Age. I think that's what it was. Okay. But I suggest you look at that book, and he calls us. Uh, the spade is spade. He attacks the United States in the Spanish-American War. Yeah, and he uh, wrote uh, King Leopold's soliloquy and the war prayer. Correct. Thank you, comrades. And one of the things I want to mention when it comes to Mark Twain is that he was an outspoken anti-imperialist. And one of the things you'll see in one of the clips from Untold History of the U.S. is that he was actually a founding member of the Anti-Imperialist League, which had formed in response to uh, the manufacturing of consent for the Spanish-American War. So it's a very uh, crucial part of that history.
Yeah, I just wanted to say that I appreciate the difference between colonialism and uh, semi-colonialism because I was trying to think of a way to put it earlier because I think he's right that semi-colonialism is used in imperialism. Um, but I also had a, a professor once who put it to me very effectively where the difference between, say, like the British Empire and the American Empire is the British Empire would go places with flags and a lot of overt symbolism and conquering and, you know, very open, blatant sort of suppression of peoples, while the American Empire, using more subtle semi-colonialism, just lets the corporations do everything. It's like you countries can keep their own flag and keep their own everything. It's just the corporations will just own everything. And then everyone will be in debt and everyone has to pay debts to the corporations that own everything. So it's, I just wanted to add a little bit more of that. All right. Thank you, comrade. Uh, yeah. Uh, wasn't Mark Twain a socialist? I don't know if he was a socialist, but I know that he was anti-imperialist. No, he's not known as a left person at all. He gave an analysis that a, a change of government is normal. A child, they as they grow up, they outgrow their clothing. So they got to get new clothing. That was his analysis. So as a country matures, it needs new government, a new type of government. That's the closest I know him talking about a revolution. All right. Thank you, comrades. Yeah, about this term, uh, semi-colonialism. I've heard neo-colonialism a lot. And based off description of what I heard about semi-colonialism, it sounds like it's pretty similar. So is there a difference between the two? Or are they just synonyms for the same phenomenon? Yeah, they're just different terms used by different people. I believe Lenin used the term uh, semi-colonialism. And then uh, I think uh, the term uh, neo-colonialism was uh, popularized by Kwame Nkrumah of uh, Ghana. All right. Thank you, comrade. So we'll go back to the presentation now. So the next part is 1898. So this is really the big uh, year for American imperialism. The Pacific Islands and the Spanish-American War. In February of 1898, the USS Maine, which was in Havana's harbor to protect American business interests in the midst of the revolution, and uh, comrades should remember that Jose Marti and a lot of Cuban revolutionaries were trying to overthrow Spanish rule of Cuba, which had persisted for almost 300, 400 years, and we took advantage of that. But the USS Maine exploded in the Havana Harbor due to ammunition stored next to the ship's boiler room, igniting in the over 100 degree heat at the time, and 266 servicemen died. However, American yellow journalists, and that's just a term for basically American imperial propagandists, such as William Randolph Hearst, used the incident as a narrative to justify a war against the Spanish Empire. They blamed Spain for the destruction of the USS Maine, and by April 21st, the United States went to war with Spain. And that's why you'll hear the phrase every once in a while, uh, remember the Maine. Around the time, that was the rallying cry for the war, but because now we know that it was a lie, 
remember the main is a thing to that you'll hear from some anti-imperialists when you have things like the you know the gulf of tonkin or the weapons of mass destruction in iraq or whatever they use to manufacture consent um it brings back memories of the uss maine being used as the narrative to start this war but american ships began blockading cuba by april 25th 1898 the u.s navy was also dispatched to the philippines where Manila was captured by May 1st. And we're going to watch another clip from Untold History of the United States. Cuba, less than 100 miles from the shores of Florida, had revolted against the corruption of Spanish rule, and the Spanish reacted by incarcerating much of the population in concentration camps where 95,000 died of disease. As the fighting increased, powerful bankers and businessmen like Morgan and the Rockefellers who had millions invested on the island demanded action from the president to safeguard their interests. President McKinley sent the USS Maine to Havana Harbor as a signal to the Spanish that the US was keeping an eye out on American interests. On a night in February 1898, with the tropical heat more than 100 degrees, the Maine was suddenly blown up, killing 254 seamen, supposedly sabotaged by the Spanish. The U.S. Yellow Press, embodied in mogul William Randolph Hearst, led a crazed tabloid reaction and created a vigilante climate for war. We have no secrets from our readers, Mr. Bernstein. Mr. Thatcher is one of our most devoted readers. He knows what's wrong with every copy of the Inquirer since I took over. Read the cable. Girls delightful in Cuba, stop. Could send you prose poems about scenery, but don't feel right spending your money. Stop. There is no war in Cuba. Signed, Wheeler. Any answer? Yes, dear Wheeler, you provide the prose poems. I'll provide the war. The journals cry, remember the main, to hell with Spain. Millions read it convinced that Spain, this decaying Catholic power, was capable of any evil trick to preserve her empire. When McKinley declared war, Hearst took credit. How do you like the journal's war? Often remembered by Teddy Roosevelt's symbolically colorful charge up San Juan Hill, the Spanish-American War was over in three months. Secretary of State John Hay calling it a splendid little war. Out of almost 5,500 U.S. dead, fewer than 400 died in battle, the rest succumbing to disease. 16-year-old Smedley Darlington Butler lied about his age and signed up with the Marines. He would become one of America's most famous military heroes, winning two Medals of Honor in a career that would shadow America's destiny to come. With victory, American businessmen swept in, grabbing assets where they could, essentially making Cuba into a protectorate. United Fruit Company locked up two million acres of land for sugar production. By 1901, Bethlehem Steel and other U.S. businesses owned over 80% of Cuban minerals. More than 70 years later, in 1976, an underreported official investigation by the Navy found that the most probable cause of the sinking of the Maine was a boiler which exploded in the tropical heat 
causing the ship's ammunition store to explode. As with Vietnam and the two Iraq wars, the U.S., basing its reaction on false intelligence, went to war because it wanted to. In the glow of victory, however, the U.S. found herself with a much bigger problem. She'd acquired from the Spanish a gigantic but ramshackle landmass in the Far East, the Philippine Islands, which were viewed as an ideal refueling stop for China-bound ships. As in the invasion of Baghdad in 2003, the fighting there began successfully. Commodore George Dewey had destroyed the Spanish fleet in Manila Bay in May 1898. One anti-imperialist noted, Dewey took Manila with the loss of one man and all our institutions. The Anti-Imperialist League was founded in Boston in 1898, seeking to block U.S. annexation of the Philippines and Puerto Rico. Its ranks included Mark Twain, who famously asked, Shall we go on conferring our civilization upon the peoples that sit in darkness? Or shall we give these poor things a rest? President McKinley did not share that mindset, opting finally for annexation. There was nothing left for us to do but to take the Filipinos and uplift and civilize and Christianize them and by God's grace do the very best we could by them as our fellow men for whom Christ also died. On June 7, 1898, during the Spanish-American War, the United States annexed the Hawaiian Islands, which were crucial for extending American influence in the Pacific and were a good refueling stop on the way to Asia, a lot like the Philippines. It was the Dole Fruit Company that led the way six years before to overthrow the native kingdom, and now their interests were definitely secured. The United States acquired Guam, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines in the Spanish-American War, and set up what amounted to a protectorate over Cuba. In January of 1899, the United States acquired Wake Island. By 1904, the United States took possession of two islands in Samoa, which, with it, which they were given in the tripartite pact with the German Empire, which was also exerting its power in the Pacific. And uh, just for context, earlier in the late 1800s, there was a skirmish between the German Empire and American business interests in Samoa, uh, which caused a brief scuffle that uh, required this pact. So when you hear that, uh, that's what it's referring to. And there's another uh, picture over on the side. Uh, this is a famous picture that I'm sure a lot of comrades have seen of American imperialism. You have an eagle standing on the United States, spreading its wings over all the territories that we got then. And it says 10,000 miles from tip to tip. And now we'll stop for another round of discussion. Yeah, I'm enjoying that video. And I've heard to that period of time have been called the jazz, jazz age imperialism or the banana wars, banana republic wars. And Smedley Butler, we all know his story. I think it's very interesting, this American anti-imperialist league, and that it even included Mark Twain and that whole part of our history has been forgotten that there was a section in our country of the people it was included the working class that stood up against this imperialism so perhaps we can continue that path thank you comrade so i was a little shocked to see andrew Carnegie in that list of people on the anti-imperialist league 
he was one of the major robber barons of the Gilded Age, although perhaps one of the more, you could say, like so-called benevolent ones. Depending who you ask, I grew up going to a library that he built. He built libraries all across the country, and you can talk about a lot of good things that Carnegie did. However, there's still like the Homestead strike here in Pennsylvania that was a violent steel strike that he was not for. So I guess to put it to a question is, was Andrew Carnegie's involvement in the Anti-Imperialist League, could that be considered a progressive position for that robber baron? Nothing but dialectical. At certain points in time, they can play a progressive role, regardless if they themselves are reactionary. And at another point in time, they can then be a progressive, right? And play a reactionary role, despite them being a progressive, right? And also, I'd like to point out, you bring up a good point, uh, Lenin in imperialism, uh, you know, essentially asserts that imperialism uh, brings about different sociabilities, different socialities. It raises the sociality of the imperialized uh, whatever. But yeah, that's all I got. Thank you. Right. Thank you for that, comrade. Yeah, I was going to say something that needs to be said about this period of time. Annexation of the Philippines after the Spanish-American War. There was this war between the Filipinos and the Americans. It was particularly brutal Filipino people. That was essentially a genocide. We killed hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of Filipinos, and we slaughtered them as far as young children a lot of times and conducted scorcher policies. It was just horrible what we did to them. Thank you, comrade. And that's going to be one of the things that gets brought up in the next section is the Philippine-American War and like the full-on colonialism and genocide that was done there. So uh, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, I just wanted to give a note on... um. Andrew Carnegie, he was the uh, steel robber baron that eventually formed the Carnegie Steel Corporation and then through Charles Schwab was later the Bethlehem and United Steel Companies, which you saw the um, factory in Cuba in that video. All right. Thank you for that, comrade. But uh, we're going to go to our final section for tonight, which is the Philippine-American War, the Eight Nation Alliance, and the Banana Wars. McKinley was ignoring reality. Under the fiery leadership of Emilio Aguinaldo, the Filipinos had established their own republic in 1899 after being freed from Spain, and like the Cuban rebels, expected the United States to recognize them. They had overestimated their ally, and now they fought back. After one protest, Americans lay dead in the streets of Manila. America's Yellow press cried out for vengeance against the barbarians. Torture, including waterboarding, became routine. The insurgents, or our little brown brothers as they were nicknamed, were pumped full of salt water until they swelled up like toads to make them talk. One soldier wrote home, We all wanted to kill niggers. This shooting human beings beats rabbit hunting all to pieces. It was a war of atrocities. When rebels ambushed American troops on the island of Samar, Colonel Jacob Smith ordered his men to kill everyone over the age of 10 and turn the island into a howling wilderness. 
More than 4,000 U.S. troops would not return from this guerrilla war, which lasted three and a half years. 20,000 Filipino guerrillas were killed, and as many as 200,000 civilians died, many from cholera. But because of distorted press reports, mainland Americans comforted themselves with the thought that they had spread civilization to a backward people. American society grew more callous from this war as this new doctrine of Anglo-Saxon superiority not only justified a nascent empire, but changed social relations at home as southern racists resorting to similar arguments initiated a campaign against the true meaning of the outcome of the American Civil War and passed new Jim Crow laws enforcing white supremacy and segregation. In China, a similar yearning for independence led to the homegrown Boxer Rebellion of 1900. Nationalist-minded Chinese rose up with fury to murder missionaries and throw out all foreign invaders. McKinley sent 5,000 American troops to help the Europeans and the Japanese defeat the rebels. Lieutenant Smedley Butler was in the invading force leading his Marines into Beijing where he saw firsthand the way the victorious Europeans treated the Chinese. He was disgusted. Thus, as in 2008, the 1900 American election took place with U.S. troops tied down in numerous countries. In this case, China, Cuba, and the Philippines. And yet, McKinley, basking in the glow of victory over Spain, beat Bryan by a wider margin than he had in 1896. Socialist Eugene Debs barely registered with under 1%. Americans had clearly endorsed McKinley's vision of trade and empire. At the height of his popularity, McKinley was assassinated by an anarchist in 1901. The assassin had complained about American atrocities in the Philippines. And now uh, we'll go and talk about the Panama Canal and the Banana Wars. So with the inauguration of Theodore Roosevelt, which was a second or third cousin to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, and the long yearning for a canal across Central America to reduce shipping time to Asia. And comrades should be familiar with uh, the fact that before that, ships had to go all the way around South America, all around the Cape of, I think it's Cape of Magellan or something like that, uh, basically between South America and Antarctica to go past the Americas to go towards Asia. It made it astronomically quicker. The United States orchestrated a revolution in Panama to get a government that they could make a treaty with to create a Panama Canal Zone. The Panama Canal was built by 1914, was operated by the United States, in effect controlling a major shipping route of the world. Then followed a series of coup d'etats and American interventions in Central American and Caribbean countries from the 1900s to the 1930s. The creation of U.S. puppet states for the interests of American fruit, oil, sugar, and more, called banana republics, resulted in a number of conflicts called the Banana Wars. United Fruit Company was a central American monopoly behind these wars. The logo of the company at the time even featured a rifle. And that, you know, that's not a banana, so you know what that's for. A couple of images over on the side, you have, of course, the building of the Panama Canal, which was no easy task. I mean, you were building over a continent, even if it was a lot more skinny at that area. 
But then you have another map which kind of shows American shipping at the time and how crucial the Panama Canal was for that. And then you have, of course, the United Fruit Company logo down there saying creating Banana Republic since 1899. And we'll watch another clip from Untold History of the United States. In the years to follow, U.S. Marines were repeatedly sent in to protect U.S. business interests in what were now called Banana Republics. Considered backward and in need of strong rule by sometimes brutal dictators able to enforce U.S. business interests on the workers and a resistant peasantry. It is my policy to protect American citizens and American interests whenever, wherever they are threatened. Cuba, Honduras, Nicaragua, the Dominican Republic, Haiti, Panama, Guatemala, Mexico. U.S. occupations often lasted for years, sometimes for decades. No one had more first-hand experience intervening in other countries than Smedley Butler, now a major general in the Marine Corps. Adored by his men, they called him Old Gimlet Eye after a wound sustained in Honduras. And at the end of his long and highly decorated service, he reflected upon his years in uniform. I spent 33 years and four months in active military service as a member of this country's most agile military force, the Marine Corps. I served in all commission ranks from second lieutenant to major general. And during that period, I spent most of my time being a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street, and for the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer, a gangster for capitalism. Like all the members of the military profession, I never had a thought of my own until I left the service. I helped make Mexico, especially Tampico, safe for American oil interests in 1914. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National City Bank boys to collect revenues in. I helped in the raping of half a dozen Central American republics for the benefits of Wall Street. The record of racketeering is long. I helped purify Nicaragua for the International Banking House of Brown Brothers in 1909 to 1912. I brought light to the Dominican Republic for American sugar earners in 1916. In China, I helped to see to it that Standard Oil went its way unmolested. During those years, I had, as the boys in the back room would say, a swell racket. Looking back on it, I feel I could have given Al Capone a few hints. Best he could do is operate his racket in three districts. I operated on three continents. His overall outspokenness over the years would cost Butler dearly when he was passed over as commandant of the Marine Corps, which he now left in 1931 under a cloud of contention. All right, and this is our last slide for tonight. American imperialism in 1914. At the turn of the First World War, the United States was a burgeoning empire that had been making its mark on international politics for over a decade. The completion of westward expansion, the defeat of the Spanish Empire in the Americas, the participation in the Eight-Nation Alliance, the acquisition of several islands in the Pacific and Caribbean, the colonization of the Philippines, the building of the Panama Canal, and the realization of the Monroe Doctrine with intervention in Latin America made the United States one of the main imperialist powers. 
However, it was not yet a superpower and held no hegemony outside of its own territories yet. Its isolation from Eurasia meant European wars and conflicts were of no interest to America before, but the world wars that were to follow presented the United States with an opportunity to take advantage and try to eventually establish economic hegemony worldwide. American imperialism truly bloomed in 1898. And this series is going to be continued in another class that we'll probably have in uh, July or August called The History of U.S. Imperialism, World War I. And that's when things are going to change a lot. We're going to become a lot more involved in European affairs. I mean, it's World War I, so the entire situation around the world is going to change. And we're going to be set up against the Soviet Union, and there's going to be the rise of Nazi Germany after that. And so it's going to be a, a very big change of events. But this class was just to go over the origins of it. And so I hope that the comrades enjoyed it. But now we'll go ahead and take our last round of questions and comments before we hang up for tonight. Yeah, real quick. I'm just annoyed about how much was skipped over or left out in our Western textbooks. It's kind of gross. That's it. Thank you. Yeah. And, and I'll just say real quick, when I was in school and when I would get to the point of a textbook that talked about American imperialism, because for some reason, my schools would always talk about old history rather than contemporary. They always acted like American imperialism was just this this stage of American history that only existed between like 1898 and the 1920s. And then saying, oh, we went isolationist after that. That is the furthest thing from the truth. We had periods where we weren't intervening in countries like we were in the 1900s and 1910s, but the system of imperialism persisted and grew all the way to this day. And so that's something that we're going to see as this uh, history of U.S. imperialism section goes on. One of the things I wanted to add about the Philippines and just the terror that we inflicted on those peoples was there's actually something that we did there that was hideous. The Filipinos had a kind of like an urban myth of a monster that would basically come out of you know the caves or wherever it was and would drain the blood of Filipino people. And it was like the sign of like bad luck or bad omens or something. What the U.S. imperialists did when we went into the Philippines was we actually found out about that, you know, that myth. And we would actually kill Filipinos and drain their blood and then just leave them there to inflict that psychological terrorism, that horror to go. We are the monsters that you fear. So I just wanted to add that in there. Yeah, I really appreciate this documentary that we are watching, and I like how Oliver Stone is also using movies to tell the history. And, you know, we mentioned that he directed Ukraine on Fire, which also, if anybody hasn't seen, should see it. But for anybody who doesn't know, like Oliver Stone is definitely one of the most prominent directors of all time. He also is a veteran who served in Vietnam and got a bronze star and used that experience to direct movies like Platoon and Born on the Fourth of July and apparently made two movies of him doing interviews with like Fidel Castro and so on and so forth. So highly recommend all of his works. Yeah, and I'll just add to that and say, you know, Oliver Stone, you know, he isn't a communist by any means. But he is a fellow traveler when it comes to the kind of 
uh, stuff he's been doing, especially in the last decades. I believe the first thing he did after this Untold History of the U.S. series was interviews with Vladimir Putin. And at the time, that pissed off American imperialism for anybody to go and listen to what Vladimir Putin had to say. And that was a good thing to do. And I would recommend that comrades check that out. And on the, you know, on this series, Untold History of the United States, this was actually a series that I had watched before I came to the PCUSA. And I think it's one of the things that brought me to communism. Uh, not that he was advocating it in it, but just the brutality and the disgustingness of of the American empire and all the things that we had done. It was it was mind blowing. So I would recommend that comrades watch through the series. There's like 14 episodes that go all the way from uh, like this one, President McKinley, all the way up to the Obama administration when this was released back in 2013. So um, it's a very good series, and I would highly uh, recommend that we watch it. But some of it you've got to buy on YouTube. So I don't know. I'll have to figure that that out for the future. But uh, whenever we can, we'll watch more of it. Something that uh, even our, uh, our own slides didn't bring up regarding the Panama Canal. Panama was not a, a, a country. Basically, it was a uh, under, it was a state of Colombia, and we negotiated a treaty with the president of Colombia, and the Colombian Senate had refused to go along and uh, it turned it down. So we basically instigated a, a revolutionary coup against Colombia and revolutionaries then formed the country of Panama, which then of course signed the uh, agreement to build the canal. So that's how far we went, is to actually break up a country and uh, in order to get what we wanted. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. And I'll add as well that it took us about 60 or 70 years to ever give the Panama Canal Zone back to Panama. And then we intervened more in like the Operation Just Cause and and other things. So Panama, its history is heavily intertwined with U.S. imperialism. The Arts and Cultural Commission needs to have a series on Oliver Stone. Remember, he did a whole movie on how the President Kennedy was assassinated. The establishment hated him for it because he opened up a lot of questions. Remember, there was a movie also called Panama Deception. I don't know if anybody here has ever seen that documentary. Excellent. Panama Deception. All about how we built up this guy, Oriega, I think his name was. Manuel Noriega. Yes. And then we got rid of him because he didn't serve us anymore. So we have a lot of chutzpah to tell Russia or China that they should not control what's going on when this country is the one that does it. All right. Thank you, comrade. Yes, I'm actually Panamanian by descent and of citizenship and have citizenship in Panama. Um, the way of U.S. imperialism was all over Panama and how they treated the Panamanian citizens is one of the driving forces of why I became a communist. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. The, the name uh, William Randolph Hearst came up a bit. You know, he was the yellow journalist. He owned his big newspaper company that basically pushed for American uh, imperialism. But I also want to, you know, remind people, um, you know, he also wrote positive coverage for Nazi Germany. Well, not he, him, but his uh, staff, 
he uh, had them right. But the whole, uh, you know, we, we constantly hear about this, the Holodomor myth. Well, that was propaganda straight from Joseph Goebbels's propaganda agency, but then uh, pumped into the world media through William Randolph Hearst. So I just want people to know who he is. Thank you, comrade. And just to add on to that as well, uh, William Randolph Hearst was the person behind the Reefer Madness uh, campaign, which was the kind of uh, precursor to the war on drugs propaganda about cannabis. That's actually where the term marijuana comes from, because they wanted to make it sound more, you know, Mexican. They, they wanted it to sound like it was a immigrant thing. And so William Randolph Hearst has been constantly one of the people pushing false propaganda to push American imperialism and fascism. So uh, thank you for bringing that up. And I also just want to say uh, Smedley Butler was one of the persons that was brought up a lot in this. Um, I'd highly uh, recommend reading War is a Racket, really good thing. But one of the things, and this will get brought up too, and I think one of the next Untold History of the U.S. episodes, was he actually foiled the business plot, the attempted fascist takeover of the United States government in the 1930s. They tried to recruit him for it because he was basically left the service in that cloud of contention that they talked about. They tried to recruit him for it, and he said, something's not right here, and blew the whistle on it, which was one of the you know things that helped avoid a fascist coup in the United States in the 1930s. So we have a lot to thank Smedley Butler for. I thought the part of about the act of how we treated the, those in the Philippines and others and how it connected to the Jim Crow era was really interesting. And I was curious if anyone had any book recommendations or other sources on that topic. Thank you. So I don't have any um, books or documentaries to add when it comes to that. But if anybody does, you can go ahead and shoot them to one of the co-hosts in the chat. We'll make sure to share it. I will say that Untold History of the United States isn't just a documentary series. They actually wrote a book for it, and I actually have it over there. It's a pretty thick book. It's like, But it includes all the information that they put in the documentary, plus more stuff that they couldn't fit in for time. So I'd recommend... If you're able to get your hands on that book, uh, it'd be a really good thing to read. Okay, I just wanted to say this was a great class. And, you know, we see the history and how, you know, the United States has been developed to the point that it is. And this just goes to show how ideologically lost certain people are, that they claim that countries like China and countries like Russia are imperialist and all this bull crap. They don't have this history. They don't even have this in the modern times. You know, they, they don't even come a quarter of close to the things that have been done by U.S. imperialists. You know, if you noticed in that documentary on several countries, uh, Nicaragua and Honduras, for example, there was seven government interferences, seven coups, you know, things within a span of four or five years in a lot of these countries. This is just like constant manipulation of outside, you know, forces, basically. And then here in the United States, we moan that Russia supposedly interfered in the election and this and that. It's terrible. People are are lost. And, you know, it's our job to get out there and tell them that, you know, a lot of the things that they have learned is not the entire truth. Thank you, comrade. And, you know, I'll, I'll add to that as well, that, you know, when you take a look at Cuba's history or Nicaragua's history, and you see just how long 
we kept up these uh, interventions, or even, I guess, to some extent, the Philippines history. You know, with Cuba, we had the Platt Amendment, which basically made it a protectorate, and we kept basically having them as a semi-colony all the way up to the Cuban Revolution, 1959, when Fulgencio Batista was overthrown. Um, with Nicaragua, we kept up the intervention into the 30s, I believe. And of course, Nicaragua and Cuba nowadays are anti-imperialist countries. Nicaragua supports the uh, Russian intervention in Ukraine, you know, et cetera. Of course, the Cuban revolutionaries were anti-imperialist. We know that. So you see how these countries, they get imperialized for decades. It leaves a mark on them and they don't trust us. And they will be, you know, against us in, in the form of anti-imperialism and and being in the the socialist bloc, or at least the not Western aligned, you know, block of nations in the world. So I just wanted to add that. People were talking about Nicar Nicaragua. People should remember uh, in the 80s, the CIA illegally funded a um, war against the uh, Marxist Leninist. Uh, the Sandinistas, they're, they're technically Marxist Leninist at the time. Their ideologies changed to kind of like dim stock now, kind of. Kind of, they're kind of a big tent now, but um, they they funded the Contras uh, illegally. Congress told them no, that because the Contras were uh, selling cocaine, and that's one of the reasons why the Congress didn't want them supporting them. And the cocaine was, I mean, it was going to the U.S. because that's where South American cocaine goes. So they were letting the drug trade affect America, and they didn't even really care. Thank you, comrade. Uh, one thing I wanted to bring up, which Oliver Stone doesn't mention, and I hadn't realized until I was researching this, is, you know, we expanded across North America where we could. You know, we had the contiguous United States, uh, Washington, Oregon, and California, and the eastern seaboard. That's what it was in between. We did attempt to grow outside of those borders in North America, or at least we had planned to on several occasions. There was a border war with Mexico in the early 1910s, where we tried to exert more of our power on Mexico and tried to use their revolution at the time uh, to break through for American business interests. And also in the early 1920s, I believe, there was actually plans that the U.S. military had drew up for an invasion of Canada, and we never did it. And so that was something that got declassified not too long ago. You know, of course, the Canadian government was like, wait, what? You you were planning an invasion of us? But that was just another thing. We You saw William Henry Seward, the person that was in the uh, Lincoln and Johnson administrations, had actually wanted to take over Canada as well as Colombia. It, it was planned, but it just never happened. And by nowadays, Canada was one of the founding members of NATO. So we've basically extended our imperialism to them even if it's not officially the United States. Uh, thank you. I had a couple of questions. Um, so first off, it's like, if all these atrocities are going on when the United States became imperialist, why did McKinley's popularity go up? And the other question is, I know we're, as Leninists, we're against assassinations, but would we consider the assassination of McKinley a good thing? Yeah. Well, there was a lot of propaganda at the time. You got to think this is the first time that we really are doing like overseas campaigns. So Americans aren't entirely like 
exhausted by this yet. Nowadays, we do it all the time and all over the place. Americans don't want to be sent anymore to foreign wars. But at the time, it was seen as, oh, this president is doing what no other president before has done. I think that's the reason why he got a lot of votes at that time. Well, I would say that I don't know that it did anything productive or progressive at the time. We just got Teddy Roosevelt as a president who was even more imperialist in in ways than McKinley was. So I think that that was one of those things that really didn't have any effect, didn't like improve any of the material conditions for anybody. So I would say that, no, it wasn't a progressive thing. It was terrorism. So and and anarchists have a history of doing assassinations that just cause things to get worse. World War One. I. I just want to have a quick word because you're talking about uh, Canada and U.S. imperial ambitions in Canada. And this goes all the way back, you could argue, to the Revolutionary War, but even to the War of 1812, which isn't an imperialist war. It's America defending its own sovereignty. But the Americans take this war with Britain to attack our colonies uh, in Canada. And you're seeing, you know, the sort of trace of wanting to keep expanding northward, keep finding more and more land, trying to keep expanding. But you also see as the century develops and Canada and the U.S. have closer economic ties by their like 1910s and 20s that, you know, any ambition about trying to annex or take over Canada's basically out the window and our close ties economically and geopolitically are uh, very well developed. So Canada's weirdly enough almost a guinea pig for us in terms of how we deal with country. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. Thank you for all your comments and, and questions tonight, comrades. I think it was a really good class. I think this is going to be a good series going forward. It's really crucial that we understand our nation's imperialism from the start, from the get-go. That's why I included that introduction section so that we can kind of lead from the formation of our country all the way up until today without any gaps or unexplained events. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information or to join our free classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube, listen to our streams on Spotify, and chat with us on Reddit.